Good morning. It is so wonderful, such a privilege and an honor to stand in this place today. Will you briefly pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We spent much of Advent waiting for a child. Now, I am closer, Dean, my husband, and I are closer to the ages of Abraham and Sarah than we are to the ages of Mary and Joseph, and having a child come into our lives was almost as unexpected as it was uh, for both of those couples. But sometimes we have realized God moves in such concrete, breathtaking ways You don't have to bolster your theological convictions to discern where God is moving. He just is. And you are in the middle of it. So in the middle of December, without a chorus of angels or some surprise shepherds, unless you count Dean and I as the surprise shepherds raising sheep as we do, on a plane from Texas, delivered by my sister, came into our care our five-year-old grandson, Brody, who is here among us this morning. Yes. So Christmas through Christmastide and Epiphany, the parallels between our lives and the narrative of the gospel story have been pretty much unmissable. One Sunday morning as I sat here and we had called the children forward and they were sitting down here getting ready to go to children's church, Dean had come with Brody. Brody was perched up in Dean's lap. Brody had been waiting all week to get to carry the cross to children's church. And it may not have exactly been the Sunday that was the presentation of Christ in the temple, but it was close. And that's all I could think about. Was the, were the connections between our child being here among our Christian community and Mary and Joseph taking their baby to the temple. There's a lot I am pondering in my heart along with Mary in these days. Brody's life among us is literally the kingdom of God breaking in, healing healing him and us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Yet, preaching isn't about me, even when there is such a wealth of material living in my household. It's about God and what God is doing and what he is just about to do. And preaching is pointing at holy love at work in the world and saying, look, right there, right there, that's him, that's him. Let's go join him. One of my favorite practices that I've been practicing for years, and boy, did I wish, do I wish I had more time to do it right now, is sitting with the scriptures of the daily lectionary or the weekly lectionary. And in good, yes, thank you, Joe Donjel, wherever you are, inductive Bible study fashion, sitting with them and weaving together what God has created in and amongst the stories that he has given us. So, very briefly, let us look at 
the scriptures that you just heard. Very briefly, I'm not going to read them to you. Relax. This is not going to be me reading the scriptures all over again. Second, in Second Kings, we find what most scholars believe is the core of Deuteronomy has been found by Josiah's workers in the temple, in the ruins of the temple. Josiah here is 18 years old, young man. He has come to the kingship of Judah a generation too late. He, his work and his love of, the, of God will not be able to save them from the destruction that is ahead. But God will put a stay on it for a moment, for Judah's sake. I mean, for Josiah's sake. Psalm 27, one of my favorites. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take courage and wait for the Lord. I think there are many of us who have sat with that psalm on many a dark night. And then 1 Corinthians. Paul, we love you. We admire you. But we don't have you figured out. Especially how we are supposed to do what you say. And then Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the world. You are the light for all the world. And some days I feel like the only salt I am is the salt that, beca- that is Lot's wife, eternally looking back into the past that is smoking and in ruins. And I am stuck there, eternally looking backwards. And the only light I am is the light of Edna St. Vincent Millay's candle that is burning at both ends, and yet mine is burning in the middle too. And that's the only light that I'm giving out in this moment. And those of you who know Dean and I have walk, are walking this journey with us know that in the past month or so, this has gotten really, really hard. And for those of you who have been in pulpit ministry and had small children at home, you have my eternal respect and wonderment. I do not know how that happens. It was an act of God that I was even able to put these words together this morning. It is an act of God that I am not, we are not hearing conversation from out there. But I have been able in this season to read this book which I would recommend to all of you, Dallas Willard's Life Without Lack. It's an extended view, an extended exploration of Psalm 23. And so what I want to share with you this morning, um, this, this is Will, these are Willard's ideas, which I have brought to our lectionary text, text this morning. I believe this is the word that God has for us today in this place. When we begin a life of faith, we begin often in the place of a faith of propriety. A faith that says that good behavior is the litmus test. If I can look like everybody else and act like everybody else and mind my P's and Q's like everybody else, then God will love me and I will be okay. And for a while, we can do that. For a while, that is, that is fine. That is, a, that is an early stage of faith where we learn how to have faith by watching the people around us who have faith and saying, I want to be like them. I want to do what they do. I want to have the joy that they have. That's what I want. But then life 
catches up with us. You all may not know this, but we live in a broken world. And things aren't always the way we think they're supposed to be. And some days, the evil, the meanness, the brokenness is more than we can handle. And that's just when we look in the mirror. Much less than when we look at the media or we take in information around us. And so desperation leads us often, I believe, as Christians, to that place where we grit our back teeth together and we say, I am going to do this. Surely, God will honor my effort to try harder. And I will try harder and I will try harder and I will repent and I will confess and I will try harder. And then finally, you get to the point, and if you haven't gotten there, brothers and sisters, you are going to get there. Let me speak to you as one who is there. It's just going to become too much. And acting as if doesn't work anymore. And we come to a faith of desperation where we are committed to God, we are committed to his kingdom, we are committed to his people. We have said we're going to do this, we are going to do this, but goodness gracious, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I don't know how I am going to get up tomorrow and do it again. And it's just too much. But it is in that moment that God leads us to the faith of sufficiency. And so to take this delightful paraphrase of Jesus, what I am trying to do here is to get you to relax. Not to be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. You'll find that all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. So how do we get from here to there? The first, the first piece of this, I believe, is connection. When we are connected to God and each other, and we do that in two ways, through communion and through community. In communion, we literally meet God face to face. We literally walk out of our ordinary lives where you're sitting right now up here to receive what he has for us. We take it in and we take it back out in the world. Communion is not this act that we do up here, as Brody calls it, when, we, when do we get the bread, Grand? Communion is a way of life. It's a coming and receiving and taking and ingesting and going back out and giving it to a hurting, broken world that needs it so desperately. And we also do it in the connection of community. Many of you know that I teach high school for, for kids that come from, we call it hard places, 
A lot of them come through the foster care system. Some of them come from inpatient mental health facilities. And it is a very difficult world to live in. But I know at the other end of a very simple press of my thumb on my phone that I have about five people, most of whom are in this room, will drop what they're doing and pray in that instant for what is going on. And I don't have time right now, but if you want to hear the stories of how God responds, it is unbelievable in the moment when I have a 6'3", 18-year-old boy who's really a 5-year-old in a man's body who is convinced that the world is out to get him, and I am the symbol of that. And I hit that button that says, pray now. And the peace, and the safety, and the words that I don't have come through me into that, into that young man's mind and heart. That's not a Kelly thing. That's a God thing. And it's that connection It's the connection that exists between us as brothers and sisters who lift each other up when we can't walk anymore. And who, when we are authentic enough to say, I can't take one more step. And the community comes around us and says, okay, I'll carry you. The second thing is commitment. When we are committed to God and each other. Now, I will tell you that when we get to the third part of this and the rest of what I have to share with you this morning, this commitment is a vital piece of that. Commitment means I am going to do this no matter what. It is that stick to that sometimes is our back teeth gritted together. Sometimes it is the nails in the in, the, in, our, in our palms of our hands saying, I am going to do this. I am not going to give up. What I really want to do is get in my car and drive to Moorhead City and lay on the beach. But I am not going to give up today in this five minutes when we are committed to God and each other. And commitment means, yes, dying to self Commitment means humility. Commitment means those things that aren't the fun part. Commitment means laying down those things that we thought that God had for us. You know, I started in the church. I started in my life of serving Jesus when I was nine years old. And I went to the Southern, a Southern Baptist church with my grandparents. My great-grandmother, who believed that Jesus was, yes, a Baptist and a Democrat, And anybody who believed differently was just not going anywhere. But I wear her ring this morning to remind me of where I've come from. The minister of music stood me up in the pulpit one Sunday night and said, Y'all, listen, this little girl can sing. And I started off in a life of leading worship, which grew into a life of preaching, which grew into a life of pastoral ministry, which brought me here today. But I believe that there is a lot that the traditional Western church in this hemisphere has taught us that we need to unlearn. 
And the unlearning that we need to do has to do with the fear and the shame and the guilt that is all, that has sunk down into our bones, that, that God is saying to us, commitment is something hard. Commitment is something impossible. Commitment means you, you have to, no matter what. And all we hear is the judgment. All we hear is the separation. You're separated from God and you can never get back there. We hear about commitment in our relationships and what our minds go to, our broken human minds go to, is what it takes to stay with one person for the rest of your life. Oh my goodness, I'm not sure I can stay for half an hour. But what commitment is about is delight. And that leads me to the third part of this. When we can say God is God and I am not, we can live in that Chuck Gutenson epistemic humility, knowing what you don't know. I don't know how many more seminary professors I'm going to quote here, but they're, you know, they're just coming to me. Um, God is God and I am not. God, I don't need to know. When we sit with Job in the ashes and we listen to Job's friends and we listen to Job's wife and yet we still sit and wait. We come to the place of creativity. And this is the good stuff. Trusting in God's delight. Trusting that when we sit and think in our God-given brains about looking into the face of God, looking into the face of Jesus, living in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that what we see from that, that triune entity is delight, not shame and guilt, not sinners in the hands of an angry God, not a spider on a web over a flame, but delight. I'm going to speak to that a little bit more in a moment. When we live lives of connection and commitment, then we can live lives of creativity, taking part in what God is up to in the world. Our God-given creativity helps us become part of what God is already up to, what God is already doing. When we connect with that, living in and building the kingdom of God on earth as it already is in heaven. And so when we come back around then to those lectionary scriptures, and I promise I don't know what time it is, but this won't last forever. When we come back to 2 Kings, when we weave, when we look at what God is weaving together in the lectionary again, we are unlearning our shame-based propriety and desperation that say, you can't do this. There's too much evil. God is angry. You should be guilty. You should be ashamed. But brothers and sisters, hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit say, Josiah, you're on the right track. People, come back to me. You're going to know my love for you. The psalmist says you don't have to drum up light and salvation on your own. It's right here. God says, look at my face. Look at this world I've created. I'm delighted with you. Paul writes, God gives us what we need and we can figure it out. Through the Spirit of God, we've been given the tools that we need to know what we need to know, what God needs us to do, 
That is the spirit of Jesus that is given to us as we are connected and committed to him. It doesn't mean that it has to be a mystery. It doesn't mean it's easy. But it doesn't mean that it's a mystery all the time either. Paul is saying, you can do this. And then Jesus says it and does it and shows us. And he doesn't say, you are to be like salt in the world. You are to be like light on a hill. When we live in God's delight for us, in us, we are salt. We are light. And it flows from the core of our being, and it rolls off our fingertips. And it's like water off a duck's back. It's more than okay to know God's delight in you. The look on his face, the way he sees you. You know, I think we we have an overcorrection from the licentiousness, from the license of the 60s and 70s, and yes, that's when I was a kid. And we we have reacted against the the world saying, if it feels good, do it, by saying, we're not going to feel anything good. If it tastes good, spit it out. If it seems right, don't do it. If it's fun, go home. And we have interpreted that into our lives with Christ as well. And we feel like we can't live in God's delight. But yet that's where the creativity is. That's where the perseverance is. That's where the courage is. And in closing, I want to tell you a story. Now, don't worry about these words right now. This is a word cloud that was created from a book that I wrote back in 2015. But don't don't worry about those words. All you seminarians, don't take notes. Let me go back to them. Hold on. Just sit with them for a minute. My grandmother was, one, was the touchstone linchpin of my life. If I had to pick a human, sorry, Dean, who was the one who brought it all together, it was my grandmother. Her name was Barkley. We called her Baki because my parents were the original hippies and we were not allowed to call our grandparents grandma and grandpa so we had to call them by their first names. I couldn't say Barclay. I was the oldest, so it became Baki. Baki died um, 2017, 2018, somewhere around in there. But as she was dying, one of the the last things, she she couldn't swallow anymore. She She was laying in bed, and she said, Kale, I'd give my eye teeth or a piece of fried chicken. Well, I knew that she couldn't have fried chicken, but I was bound and determined that if that was her last wish, I'd go find the chicken myself. So I ran up the street to Walmart, and I told the ladies behind the deli counter what my grandmother wanted, and they they got a chicken breast out, and they fried one up fresh for her right there. And I took it back to her, and it was so hot, it was burning my hands. And, and I got into her room, and I said, Baki, I got Walmart fried chicken. And the smile that broke across her face, and she said, oh, honey, I can't think of what I want more than anything in this world than that fried chicken. And so I 
got it out of the wrapper and I tore it into tiny pieces and and that we sat there and she would chew on the chicken and spit it out and then she'd take another piece and she'd say now give me a piece of that skin right there give me a piece of that white meat right there and after a while you know she she grew tired and and she couldn't swallow it and I cleaned it up and I came back and I sat next to her and she grabbed my hand and she said honey that was the best fried chicken I've ever had. She is my vision of God's delight. When I close my eyes and I picture how God feels about me, I am trying to understand that he is saying, Kel, that it's the best fried chicken I've ever had. Your day at school, you did the best you could, and I'm happy about that. Hockey, fried chicken, God's delight in us, our delight in him. There's a word up here for you, so take the word home with you. Eat some fried chicken and know God's great delight and great joy. Amen.